one of my particular areas of concern is this potential risk with microdosing. And I'm starting to hear anecdotal reports of people developing something called zobular heart disease. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that living in community is the most effective and healthiest way for human beings to live. I believe we are tribal animals. And when we hang out together in tribes, which is the way we began, we support one another, we collaborate with one another, and we basically live in peace. Human beings are basically tribal, cooperative, collaborative animals. We love doing things together, all kinds of things, whether it's throwing a ball or reading books together or watching an event together or a sewing circle or playing poker or playing golf or eating. We love eating together. Human beings love sitting around in a circle and having something to eat and, sh and breaking bread. That's who we are. However, there are also a very small percentage of us who are very different. This group are predators. This is the group when we came out of the cave who used a big stick to get somebody else to do what they wanted. As soon as they got somebody else to do what they wanted, that was the beginning of what we now have as armies or cartels because two people working together could get a third and then a fourth and then a fifth, always remembering that the person who started it had the big club, and that was the predator, who eventually became tribal leaders, kings, then what? Dictators. We've seen them all through history, the small predator group who would rather have us be subjects than citizens. It was our founders who, after thousands of years of nothing but kings who could cut off anybody's head with the stroke of their finger, it was our founders who overthrew a king, King George, and overthrew the pope by whom King George ruled by divine right. Because if you went against the king, you then went against God. And nobody wanted to do that. But our founders took us out from under that and we became citizens, and that's who we are today. But citizenship and a democracy and a republic that they created is a fragile thing. And those of us who are collaborators and are cooperators, the over 95% of us, we must stay awake, awake. We must vote. And I know saying to people, you must stay awake and vote and be involved in this is particularly hard right now when 60% of us are struggling to put food on the table and pay the rent and have warm shelter for our families. It's a hard time to be asking everybody to do that, but we still must do it because better to be poor in an experiment in democracy and republic than poor in a dictatorship or poor under a king or poor under a cartel leader. Hang with me, folks. Stay awake.
Let's keep our democracy and our republic. In the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. One scientist who's maintaining an eternal vigilance is with us today, Dr. Keelan Thomas. He's maintaining a vigilance on a renaissance that's happening, or at least it's been referred to as happening within psychedelic science. After over 50 years of government suppression and obstacles, we are being allowed to do a certain amount of research into what's called psychedelic substances. And so people all over the country are trying them, some with professionals helping them, some on their own. We have a lot to learn. And although so much of the news is so good with regard to reducing PTSD, anxiety, depression, and many other aspects of life that are troublesome to so many of us, while so much of that news is good, we must also, in all transparency, bring to everybody's attention any negative effects, what are called side effects by the pharmaceutical companies trying to sanitize their negative effects by referring to them as side effects, as if it's just a little something that happens on the side. But they don't happen on the side. Negative effects happens to the entire being. And it's our job as scientists to be honest. And we have today a man who's working on being honest. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Kaelin. Thank you for having me. Keelan, you've been working on the very topic that I've been talking about in my introduction, and it's the topic of a book that I'm in contract to work on called Psychedelic Medicine Adverse Effects. Where would you like to begin in sharing with us your scientific discoveries? Yeah, so regarding adverse effects, you know, we, we're starting to collect new modern data sets from looking at these clinical trials where we can try to parse out what's happening with the, the active drug or medication versus placebo, or in some cases, even using another active comparator to see how it compares to the standard of care. And within the context of those studies, I think a lot of people are, are pretty familiar with most of the adverse effects. Well, we may start to learn about some of the long-term effects more by studying this. And so one of my particular areas of concern and particular areas that I've been the most worried about with my research and writing is this potential risk of a new utilization for psychedelics with microdosing that may in fact have this risk. And I'm starting to hear anecdotal reports of people developing something called valvular heart disease. And this is something that's well known in pharmaceutical industry. So pharmaceutical companies have known this for, for decades now that, that people taking medications with this specific pharmacologic property of activity at the serotonin 2B receptor and their affinity at that receptor, the FDA toxicology regulatory groups have agreed that this is a potential problem for any medications that's supposed to be dosed routinely but what's promising for me is that most of the research is focused on the so-called macro dosing. All of our evidence that we have so far that's in things like phase two and phase three 
clinical trials that are heading very close to FDA approval are being investigated in a similar way to any other medication that's been approved. And in these intermittent doses, we're seeing really strong beneficial effects with minimizing the adverse effects because you're essentially only taking the drug one or two times as opposed to having to take it every other day or every third day. Okay, let, let, let me be clear on this. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I want our listeners to know that you're speaking as a professor of psychiatric pharmacy. You're not just another guy on the street who has an opinion on this. So mm -hmm. that's important in terms of establishing who's talking here. And given that so much of the research has been suppressed for so long, how do you get research to look at when you're doing your research, looking at research? Mm -hmm. Where is it? Like, for example, LSD. Let's use LSD because mm -hmm. LSD has the most baggage from the 60s, the most fear around it. People jumping out of windows, looking at the sun until they got blind and so on. Mm -hmm. All that stuff. How do you dig in? and get some scientific reality, tell us. Yeah, so this, is, this has been you know, important to me for, for the book chapters and, and publications and journals that I've written, where I really do, I go back and look at some of this literature from the 50s and 60s, which wouldn't be up to the same level of analysis that you need to get a drug through something like the FDA right now, but it still provides a lot of information and a lot of clues and context about what types of adverse effects we should be looking for. And to your point, the, you know, the, 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 the statements or stories and media sensationalism around things like you're go blind or it'll break your chromosomes or all this was false. All, all the evidence at times said all that was false and completely fabricated. And essentially they were just making, making things up out of thin air that didn't really have any scientific basis in the medical literature. Some of, some of that made up stuff was actually published, wasn't it? Uh, not to my knowledge. I, I think some of the chromosome papers, they would say, yeah, there were differences, but there were differences with everything. So then people would just grab one, one aspect of it. And the same, the same goes with the blindness. Uh, that was essentially in some, someone just put that story out there and there was really no medical literature or uh, yeah. journal article. But didn't a, a scientist at Johns Hopkins, I believe, named Riccardi, publish some uh, papers on the neurotoxicity of MDMA? And it turned yes. out, right? And it turned yes. out, it turned out that he had not given his subjects MDMA, but he had in fact given them, I believe, methamphetamine. That's correct. Yeah, that that's a famous failure of the peer review process, and then. There, there had been sort of a track record of, of questions around, you know, what drug, where were you getting your supply from? Those studies then were later retracted, but the damage was done, right? Some of those messages got out to the media, and then they perpetuated this, this story that was factually inaccurate because they had the, the animal models had been dosed with methamphetamine and not, in fact, MDMA. So tell me, as a scientist, how do you react when you read that a prominent scientist at a very prominent university publishes a document and it's completely bogus because the, the 
substance that he claims he's writing about was not the substance that the subjects were given. How do you how do you deal with that as a scientist? What is it? What, tell me. Yeah, it's a it's a it's upsetting. It's a, a breach of sort of scientific etiquette and the scientific method to to do that. But there again, as you you brought up, there's always bad actors, right? That's that's one of the things. But that for what reason? How does he benefit? How does a person benefit? Is it fine? Usually we look to the money. How does a yeah. person benefit financially by taking a position that a particular molecule is dangerous and he's doing it erroneously? How does he benefit? So to me, I think the way that you benefit is that their grant funding is quite competitive to do research projects. Uh, and just by virtue of one of our earliest governmental agencies being called the National Institute of Drug Abuse, not mm -hmm. drug facts, not uh -huh. drug information, <laughs> but abuse, you have incentivized someone to claim these drugs are bad, they're uh, drugs of abuse, abuse, they're nothing but good. Right. So then NIDA basically have already biased the scientific funding to showing a negative outcome. And so to keep Thank your you. funding going, that's how Thank it would happen. You. That's an astute point. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. OK, let's come back to take take them. Let's take them one substance at a time. Talk to us about LSD. What you're saying is their studies were done on larger doses and now you're doing research on this new trend of what's called microdosing. So for the public to know, Kellen. Yeah. What kind of numbers in micrograms are we really talking about now? Let's talk so that because people are understanding micrograms when they're listening to this program. Absolutely. Yeah. So traditionally, whether it was LSD or psilocybin, about 10% of a typical dosage range was considered a quote unquote microdose. So in the case of LSD, I think the most frequently used, if you consider like most tabs had been about hundred micrograms, some up to 200 micrograms. So around 10 to 20 micrograms, I would consider that within the microdose range. And probably 10 is the most consistently used and one that actually has some randomized controlled trial data on it now, the, the 10 microgram LSD dose. I go with 10 also. Okay, talk to us. So, I mean, my research has mostly been in psilocybin macrodosing, but when I review the medical literature and have identified this potential risk that could be true of both psilocybin and LSD of this long-term repeated stimulation is because they have incredibly strong binding affinity at not only the 2A receptor, which is where we think a lot of the, the quote-unquote psychedelic and beneficial effects are coming from, but this off-target pharmacology at this serotonin 2B receptor that is expressed in heart valves. And so time after time, medications like fenfluramine, pergolide is probably the, the best uh, example of comparable um, because it even has sort of an ergoline-like structure, um, that particular medication had been shown to cause valvular heart disease in long-term studies over about a year, and most of the studies with things like pergolide or post-marketing surveillance, and multiple drugs were removed from the FDA marketplace 
once this was discovered. And so my sort of sounding the alarm has been specifically around not stopping, just taking continuous uh, microdosing for six months, a year at a time is where I think we're, we're going to start to see more potential cases of valvular heart disease. Are we seeing them yet? I, since I've published an article about this in the media, someone has come forward and I'm actively working on a case report of a case of microdosing induced valvular heart disease. One, right ca one case, but I would, I would imagine there are tens of thousands, if not more, people that are microdosing. I mean, it's, it's become a major event. Yes. So my big question when I, you know, when I hear that is how many people have not stopped and have continuously microdosed for three months straight, six months straight, one year? Because now, what, what you, when you say continuously, mm -hmm. tell us what, what you mean by what is continuous? No breaks. You basically start. And if you're using something like the Fatiman protocol, taking it every third day, you, you, instead of just doing it for the 30 day cycle, you actually just never stop doing it. Right. Oh, so you, you like Paul, taking. like, yeah. Like this fellow, Paul Austin, who started the third wave. Uh, he told me some years ago, many years ago that he took it for nine months on that protocol. Mm, that would be, that would be stop. an example. Nine months of twice a week. Yeah, that would be an example of what I would consider long-term microdosing. And I think that there are potential risks to develop valvular heart disease. And what's really intriguing about this is that regardless of what drug we're talking about, when we look at larger data sets, it happens to about one in four people. That's what all the FDA regulatory reviews have shown with drug after drug that has high binding affinity at the 2B receptor. But they haven't shown it with LSD microdosing. They've shown it with other substances, and they're generalizing to, 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 uh, to LSD microdosing, correct? That's correct. That's correct. But we also don't have any other 2B agonist drugs with this strong affinity that have not shown the valvular heart disease. So it's a little bit of a, we're in a bit of a catch-22 if the absence of information proves that nothing's there particularly when the case where not many people are telling their doctors they're microdosing, not many people would necessarily recognize the symptoms or valvular heart disease can be asymptomatic until you, you go further and further out. And so it's really about this repetition and this long-term window. And when I've, when I've seen the Fatiman protocol and things that's published on their microdosing website, they don't really have many cases. They, they say not many people are dosing for nine months or a year. People are stopping and taking breaks and even sort of the microdosing um, different websites out there. They'll talk about four to eight weeks on, two to four weeks off, which I think is a much safer model. But a lot of people aren't really necessarily looking that closely and they just keep, keep microdosing continuously. Do we know which of the valves of the ventricle? It's the ventricular valves. It's often the, the most of the studies, it tends to appear in the aortic and the mitral valves. So it tends to be this thickening in the atrial and, and uh, aortic and mitral valves of the heart. And it's really about stimulating this tissue expression. So it's almost like the valve tissue starts to overgrow. And then that can lead, lead to things like arrhythmias and in worst case scenario, something like sudden cardiac death. 
because the valve gets too stiff and it doesn't exactly. do it, the, it doesn't thicken. thicken and it, it doesn't uh, close properly by having flexibility. Exactly. And it's very different than a lot of people raise the question, well, what about amphetamines or alcohol or smoking? Doesn't that cause heart damage? It does, but it does not change the valve. So, you know, the heart beating too quick, you can lead to something called left ventricular hypertrophy, which is sort of a, a toughening or strengthening of the, the heart's, heart cell wall in a way, or the muscle cell wall yes. of the heart. But that is very different. This is a very clear pharmacologic signal at a certain receptor that leads to fibroblast proliferation in the actual valve of the, the, the cellular matrix there. So what are we going to say to people who are listening to this and are microdosing? Is there a, is there a guideline we can give them for safety because they're not going to stop? Let's not play that old game of just say no. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right? No, that, that's my biggest thing is that I'm not saying, you know, it's, I think we need to study it. One, if anyone is doing, you know, collecting data like Third Wave or Microdosing Institute, places that are, have apps, for example, it'd be great to, to ask about the symptoms, which would be things like shortness of breath, feelings of heart palpitations. Um, so, so people could start to report if they're having that. And then if they ever haven't gone to see their cardiologist, as the case, this case report I'm telling you about, to get an echocardiogram done, and then that'll tell you whether it's, it's there or it's not there. That's one good thing. The other thing I think from a, a harm reduction perspective is to do what, what most of the places are recommending is if you're going to microdose, do four to eight weeks on and two to four weeks off. And I think that really giving that break can help to reset some of that triggering of the 2B receptor. Of course, another question to ask, which is sort of the flip side in the risk reward ratio the flip side of adverse effects is what are people looking for when they're doing it that frequently? What's, That's a great what's, question. What's the goal? That's a great question. Yeah. I'm not sure. See, see, I mean, see the goal with larger doses is more obvious, mm -hmm. right? You're looking for some kind of psychotherapeutic breakthrough. You might be looking for some creativity. You're working on a problem in architecture or art, right? You may be doing it for philosophical reasons because you like how your mind works on those larger doses, but you don't get all those things with a microdose. In fact, if you microdose properly, you, you don't feel anything at all because it's below sensation. Mm -hmm. by de almost by definition, if you feel it, it's no longer a microdose. That's Correct? true. Right. That's true. Yeah. Or I've, I've heard some people take a microdose and say they feel more irritated or anxious under the. Effect oh, yes. Of microdose. I have reports of that. And, and that's typically, in my opinion, when they take too much, mm. it's no longer a microdose, but it's not a trip. It's not an experience. No. It's somewhere in between. And what happens somewhere in between is you get what you might call extra bursts of energy, but no psychological change or nothing interesting going on. And the energy can feel like anxiety mm -hmm. because it's like a little too much coffee or something like that. And they, and it's, and it's irritating. Well, let's switch over to the substance 
that you've been doing research on that you mentioned, psilocybin. Mm-hmm. What would you like to tell us about psilocybin? So psilocybin it may have this, this same risk, even in microdosing. And one of the other challenges with psilocybin is the dosing that you think you're getting is often could be highly variable. So even the same sort of, when you look at, at studies in the literature about, I pulled a sample of mushrooms from the same area, the same region, even then you can find these up to tenfold differences in the actual psilocybin and psilocin content. So when people talk to me about, you know, this many grams of mushrooms, I don't know if that's, you know, one milligram or 10 milligram, you know, it's like, it's, it's really difficult to know. And so I think it's a lot more difficult to, to figure out what your actual dose is when you're working with psilocybin mushrooms compared to LSD for this intensive, uh, if you're doing it for a microdosing type effect. And their, their, their adverse effects are quite similar, you know, between LSD and psilocybin. They tend to both have in macro doses, like we were talking about, people maybe feel more anxious. They might feel a little bit more paranoid about what's going on in the room. They might have a headache. They might feel some nausea. So these are all, you know, can be tolerated in the window of a macro dose session, right? So whether that's psilocybin with a four to six hour session, or LSD from an eight to 12 hour session. Basically the, the, the adverse effect profile during the sessions are pretty similar. And if you're only taking a single dose that really mitigates any ongoing adverse effects. Although there are certainly people who can be destabilized by the effects of both psilocybin and LSD that can have sort of enduring emotional difficulties, maybe even suicidal thoughts, et cetera. So, those are things to, to look out for, but a lot of people are feeling all the effects go away for, in most cases within that 24-hour window after taking it. Yes, yes, indeed. And so the point you're making that it's an important one about psilocybin is that when you take psilocin that's made in the laboratory, you can get a very precise dose as you can with any laboratory-made chemical. But right. once you're taking mushrooms, it's much, even though you're weighing them, you really don't know the strain, how much of the active ingredient, et cetera, et cetera. There are similarities, but it's less, much less scientific by any means. Much less precision, yeah, to, to know what dose you're getting with a batch of mushrooms, unless you're doing what now the Oregon Health Authority has rolled out these or the psilocybin facilitation centers and services. And in those cases, the labs are going to have to specify the exact percentage concentration. So you, you will be able to get to yes. the estimation of the amount yes. of psilocybin and psilocin. But that's relatively new. And in general, you know, when people tell me, oh, two grams, five grams, I go, I, that could be 10 times different. I then, you know, then, then what we, what you think you're getting. Now, one thing we do notice, there aren't large numbers of people going to emergency rooms all over the United States as a result of taking any of these psychedelic substances. Whereas with cocaine, we've seen those kind of, when the cocaine epidemic hits, the emergency rooms across the country have numbers that they can give us. 
similar when we go in, into a period of heavy heroin use, although we seem to have given heroin such a bad reputation that I think it's, it, it's, it's been quiet for a long time. Cocaine seems to run in 20-year cycles where it gets popular and then it, it, we figure out how dangerous it is. It quiets down, a certain number of people continue, and then it, it goes to sleep and then it wakes up again, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, but, but we see them eventually in emergency rooms. What do you make of the fact that we do not see significant per- numbers of people going to emergency rooms with regard to psychedelics, even though they're using them in some ways that would scare the heck out of some of us scientists, like dancing for five hours in a row in a heated room taking MDMA. Mm-hmm. And yet we're still not seeing large numbers of people at emergency rooms. What does that tell you as a scientist? Yeah, I mean, I think some people, there there certainly have been cases of people going to emergency rooms after psilocybin or LSD, but it is the, the numbers are much lower. And part of that, I think, is the number of people taking psychedelics is also much lower, the percentage, right? If we look at like U.S. drug use surveys, it tends to be one of the lowest percentages when they had sort of the hallucinogen as a subcategory. For for years, it hovered around 1% or 2%. Now it's probably creeping up to more like 3 or 4%. So your, your sort of denominator is, is quite low already. But secondly, it doesn't have the, the so-called addiction potential. When you look at things like an eight-factor analysis of, of what would make people more dependent or get into a substance use disorder with hallucinogens, that is incredibly rare. Whereas things like cocaine, methamphetamine, opioids, those rates are much higher of people getting into opioid use disorders because they want sort of the more of the euphoric effect. The way I describe it to my clients I work with Anything that makes you feel really good, really fast, and that feeling disappears quickly, that is a potentially addictive substance, behavior, whatever the case may be. And that is not what you see with something like psilocybin or LSD. If anything, you ask the person, do you want to take that again tomorrow? They'll usually say, no, that's too much. I'm good for now. I don't want to take that again tomorrow. Right. So... It's yeah. a very different experiential process, too. But, but I, I, I do think we're being told something by the lack of emergency room admissions, because even though the numbers, as you say, are small, I mean, the percentages are small, the numbers are very large. Because oh, I re- yeah, I, I, millions. I, yeah. I read recently that the number of people experimenting with psilocybin went up from 3% of the country to 6% in one year. We're talking 15 million people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and we know that we've seen as all these, you know, Oakland was, was quick to decriminalize. They gave some testimony on, at the, the safety committee hearings in Oakland uh, City Center. And now, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot more access than there's ever been. There's, you know, people selling them online, making chocolates, Colorado, mm-hmm. Oregon. So yeah, it's out there. You're right. I mean, there's been a huge increase, I would argue, in the past year or two in accessibility and then there's ever been. And we are hearing some reports of bad outcomes, but not at the volume that we'd see it as a percentage, I don't think, of, of some other substances. Exactly. So that says something in and of itself about what you might call relative safety. Yes. Doesn't it? Yes. From a physiologic standpoint, too, 
something like LSD or psilocybin are very safe in terms of the, the acute physiologic effects. Let's move on to another substance, ayahuasca. We've got people getting on planes and going to South America and taking ayahuasca in the jungles. Mm. We've got people all over the United States sitting in ayahuasca circles. Anybody who's taken it knows it's, a, it's as powerful as a full dose of LSD. But again, it's hard to tell with ayahuasca what the dose is because you don't know the vine it came from and you don't know the mixing. People know very little about it in terms of it being what they're eating. One gulp or two gulps. What does your research tell you that you can share with us? Yeah, so there, the interesting thing is there's been some labs in Brazil that have started to really do sort of modern randomized controlled trials with ayahuasca. And what they do is they, they will look at, you know, different churches uh, or indigenous use and actually, like I said, figure out the concentration. So they would say, we're doing this experiment, but we know it's this amount of DMT and this amount of harmine or harmaline. So they're identifying all the compounds in the brew that we think have these psychoactive effects and quantifying them and getting a sense of, okay, well, if we do that, how do, how do you see people's depression symptoms improve, for example? So that, that's been a, a very interesting study, the first RCT by Paulhano Fontes down in Brazil. So I think there's, we're starting to see people also research ayahuasca, not as much in the U.S., in terms of uh, medical research going on. But in Brazil, there's a pretty robust network of, of research that's been going on that I think gives us a sense. And in terms of adverse effects, I think the adverse effects often, and again, this is, you could go either way because the, the purging effects, some people get a lot of therapeutic benefit out of. <laughs> but in terms of the, the risk during the ceremony is if you're having so much excessive nausea and vomiting that is certainly at a, much higher frequency than LSD or psilocybin. You know, you could, people could get into electrolyte disturbances. If they've been fasting before, that could lead to sort of nutrition shifts and, and electrolyte changes. So there, there's some risks associated, I think a little bit more with ayahuasca, but still not so much more than any other substance people are taking. We're not seeing people post-ayahuasca journeys showing up much in emergency rooms, are we? No. And I think one of, the, one of the other beneficial things is they're often in group contexts, but I think creates a, a safer container if people are, are there to help each other in a group versus I think the times often you do see psilocybin or LSD cases, they tend to be someone doing it on their own or no one's around. And then people get into a lot of paranoia or get very anxious. And then they, they feel like they need to go to an emergency room, for example. Yeah, if the local guides can't help them and uh, look at what it is that's scaring them and turn it into something positive, hopefully. That's right. That's right. Yeah. By the way, even though I'm a clinician, clinical psychologist, I don't think the purging from ayahuasca is getting rid of internal demons and bad vibes. I think it's because people have eaten a nemetic 
And I think you as a pharmacist know that ayahuasca isn't a medic. Yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And so what happens when you eat an emetic? You throw up. Mm -hmm. And I think the shaman and a whole bunch of other people made this whole big story up about how it's beneficial psychologically to be throwing all that bad juju out of your system. And uh, I'm just, I don't, I've never bought it. I, I still don't. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know for sure, but it, <laughs> I've also heard stories where people say, Things like they felt like they got rid of some burden through it. That's and right. So if it has meaning making to them, you know that that could be that could be possible too. So it really could, can go multiple ways. But yeah, statistically, I don't think there's some actual benefit from purging for sure. Right, but I'm with you. If somebody says they got benefit, as my grandmother would say, go in good health. So mm -hmm. <laughs> ketamine. Talk to us about ketamine. Adverse effects? Yeah, ketamine adverse effects um, in terms of the, the sessions for a while, there had been concern about increases in heart rate and blood pressure, just like the other LSD and psilocybin had also been monitored. Um, but they have pretty low uh, effects on blood pressure unless there's some people that are more susceptible. One particular area um, that has been in the, the modern version of the S-ketamine approval is people with arteriovenous malformations, for example. So they have some underlying vascular problem. They might be someone at risk from, from ketamine in terms of the, the acute effects. But in general, the cardiac profile, people are fit to, to exercise, don't have any other restrictions. It's, it's a very safe molecule as well, particularly at the dose range being given. It's another drug where people often don't understand the, the huge range in dosing, right? So if you're doing things like procedural anesthesia, you might be giving, you're giving doses at or above five milligram per kilogram. In all these depression trials, they're using 0.5 milligram per kilogram. So again, we're talking about huge range of dosing that's been studied with ketamine for many, many years, very good safety profile. Um, one of the risks emerging now is that I think compared to other psychedelics, there do seem to be more likelihood of people getting into a ketamine use disorder. So we had seen that in the, the rave days in the UK and Hong Kong, where there were some people were coming out of these club scenes and were getting into ketamine use disorders where they would get into, you know, taking too much at a time. They would sort of lose, you know, lose track of what they're doing. And then you can get into a lot more accidents if there's that sort of pattern of consistent use for hours and days at a time. And then with ketamine, we have something similar, but even more so than psilocybin in that there are so many ways to administer it. Right. Also true. You can take yeah. a lasagne, you can get it into your muscle, you can get it in your bloodstream and people are snorting it intranasally, mm -hmm. which is yep. probably the common way for people to take it when they're getting addicted to it. Yes, I think that's the most common way. But yeah, no, it raises an, another point. So to to my point about, you know, this this variation in terms of dosing ranges then when you add the layer, like you're saying, of different routes of administration, whether that's insufflation or oral consumption or sublingual lozenge 
or an intramuscular injection or an IV infusion, all these have various pharmacokinetic profiles in terms of the, the drug concentrations coming into the body and subsequently the brain. And so they can have slightly different effects and they're not equivalent. So I've actually have put out um, sort of a dose equivalence guide across based on the bioavailability of the compound. So you have at least some estimation of this milligram versus that milligram based on the route of administration. But it also can have differences because of the way it's administered, whether it's given, you know, over an hour in an IV infusion or, you know, taken in a sublingual lozenge. The milligrams don't exactly match up because they're going to have different peaks and, and sort of changes in, in the way that the concentration comes into the body and goes out. So those are all important factors to consider when you're thinking about these risks um, of dosing and administration. What's your view of ketamine as a psychotherapeutic agent? I mean, I think right now it's, it's all we have in sort of controlled medical clinic settings. So I have seen it be, have some benefit for people. But again, it mostly seems to go away or dissipate after about two to four weeks. Sometimes you might hear cases of people only need infusions every couple months. To, but it does tend to, right, you know, at, over time, we see a drop off. And that doesn't seem to be happening from the, the preliminary data we have for things like MDMA and psilocybin in clinical trials where the, the symptom benefits seem to persist much longer, you know, six months, nine months, 12 months, et cetera. So I think that's one of the, the downsides of ketamine is you, can, you need more consistent um, treatment with ketamine than you might need with other psychedelics. Kellen, when we take other medicines, we take them for the effect that they have on us. So if I have a headache, I take two aspirin. I'm saying to that aspirin, remove my headache. Mm -hmm. Do these psychedelic substances, in your opinion, have an effect, a, a therapeutic effect in and of themselves, the way an aspirin takes away a headache by reducing inflammation and the various things it does? Or are these psychedelic medicines making us amenable to getting a benefit from some other source, such as verbal therapy or activity or something? What's your take yeah, on it, that? I think it's both and. I think there are, as, as preclinical data is emerging for things like BDNF, neuroplasticity, changes in neural network states that have been associated with changes in people's inner experience of psychological thoughts. But I think there's, if, if you're doing it without the psychotherapy, I think you're missing out on a lot of the benefits and the meaning making from the experiential component. So there are people that, you know, think we're going to make therapeutics that act like psychedelics, but don't have any subjective experience. I don't think they're going to be as effective. So I think there is additional benefits. I think there is a pure biological effect, but there's also a psychological effect at the same time. I want to come back to LSD just for a minute because I missed something that I want to ask you about. Okay. I had uh, spinal surgery yesterday. 
very high tech radio frequency ablation of, an, of uh, nerves. And I was chatting with the surgeon and he was asking me about the books that I've written about psychedelic medicine. And he asked me if I use the substances. And I said, I've tried everything I can possibly try uh, in, in the tradition of scientists using themselves as their safest subject rather than you, another human being that you might hurt. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, when you use it for yourself, like microdosing or other amounts of LSD, what are you seeking? What are you, what are you looking for? He wanted to know. Particularly with the microdosing, he wanted to know, because with the larger doses, the answer is more obvious. And what I said to him, and this is what I want your opinion on, when I saw Amanda Fielding's, the MRIs she published of a brain on LSD and a brain that's not on LSD, it appeared that the brain that was on LSD was more activated. There was so much more going on, firing, if you will, neurotransmissions. I see you're shaking your head, yes, that you agree. Mm-hmm. So my answer to him was that if these medicines can get more of my brain activated, that's to my benefit because I will have more brain to work with. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's kind of what the, a lot of the, the neuroimaging data has shown thus far is even in the absence of any drug, when you have hyperconnectivity in this default mode network between certain regions like the posterior cingulate cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex that have been well described to relate to things like rumination, depression, severity, if you can get out of those sort of constrained thought patterns and allow more synergy, a lot of those um, charts and things show that you're having more cross connections between various regions and networks of your brain. Why would you not want to, to you know, shake up the snow globe, as, as some people say, and, and get some new connections or have some new ability to, to form new patterns or thoughts? It's, it's sort of if you're a curious person, seems like you would you'd be very interested in psychedelics you would be interested but you'd also want to be listening to dr thomas who's saying if you're trying to get more of your brain talking to each other do it in moderation Mm -hmm. do it in a way that you don't pay in another way by getting a problem with a heart valve Mm -hmm. if that's that's possibly the case we're not sure of it yet, but you're giving mm-hmm. a possible warning. Right, right. So we talked about LSD and psilocybin, ketamine, ayahuasca. Let's talk about MDMA, the couple's heart drug. When mm-hmm. I first took MDMA in my doctor's office while it was legal, man, I thought it was the greatest thing since chopped liver. And I still feel that way. And I'm so sorry that it's taken... Rick, 35 years to get this close to FDA approval. Mm-hmm. And I, I was in shock because 
I heard Riccardi when he presented his paper on neurotoxicity. And I was scared at the time. And that was a long time ago. And of course, Congress got a hold of that paper too. Mm -hmm. What do we know about adverse effects of MDMA that are definitive with real science? Yeah, it's similar to the to the other issues that I brought up. Um, but it, it doesn't go to the see, same receptors. No, it doesn't. That's another important point. So ketamine, for example, that we just talked about works on the NMDA glutamate receptor system. And MDMA, instead of working on the serotonin 2A, like we discussed, uh, the DMT from ayahuasca, the LSD and the psilocybin, we all think that's mostly working through the serotonin 2A receptor. In the case of MDMA, it actually is going inside of the, the presynaptic terminal and releasing neurotransmitters, more preferentially serotonin. And we think that the way that that is being triggered, um, Gould Dolan has written a lot on this. It opens this sort of social reward learning critical window where people are more open to experiences, they feel more calm, they feel able to, to have emotional states, remember past memories um, that, that might not be so pleasant and be able to sort of work with that material. And that leads to you know, abilities to relearn like we're seeing in things like the PTSD clinical trials that have been done so far. So from an adverse effect, it's really just the short term blood pressure and heart rate things, it's a slightly higher with MDMA, but not much. A couple beats per minute more, a couple of millimeters of mercury right. more on blood pressure. It's not extensively more, particularly at the 80 milligram dose that's being studied in the, the phase three trials right now. And yeah, these the neurotoxicity issues and things to me, they're, they're, there's nothing really there in, the, in a therapeutic clinical trial. We're not seeing people overheat. We're not seeing people get serotonin toxicity or seizures like we have seen in club environments because you have all these other factors. People are dehydrated, they're overexerting themselves, their, their temperatures are rising. So that's where we've seen some bad outcomes in those contexts. But in a therapeutic setting, none of those have been issues thus far in the, the clinical trials from a physiologic standpoint. So when with a little piece of paper that gets printed up, that's going to be attached to the bottle of MDMA pills that the doctor is going to prescribe if it happens that way. And you open up that little piece of paper. What's it, if it was written right now by you, what would it say about adverse effects? Because those little pieces of paper always have some adverse effects written on them. Sure. Say dizziness. Do not operate heavy equipment or machinery while under the influence. That's pretty much, that's the major things that you would warn someone about on a prescription bottle like that. How seriously do you think we can get the public to take, don't drive a vehicle under the influence of these substances, like MDMA? I hope. I mean, with alcohol and, and cannabis, you know, people have raised this issue of, don't drive while impaired. I think that's going to be an important messaging to get out for people that are that are self-experimenting with any psychedelic medications. 
Um, so yeah, all the medications we discussed, I would want to have the window of its duration effects where you're not getting in cars and driving anywhere. Do you think MDMA leads people to do things perhaps against their better judgment that they wouldn't do ordinarily because of the nature of this particular medicine? I mean, I think maybe depending on the context of use, you may be more open to suggestion from other people. But I think in general that, um, you know, it's not changing, completely changing your personality, I would say. But I think it does leave people open to more being more susceptible to suggestion by people. If you're in that sort of loving state or, you know, you're not being critical, maybe you're, you're feeling a little drowsy or woozy um, with some of the dizziness. Maybe you're not making all the best decisions moment to moment. But I think it's very useful from the context of having more introspection and yes. being able to, to sort of sit with with ideas and have conversations about your emotions. Yes. I think that's what it's really useful for. Well, it is, it, it, no question. It lowers defenses and, and makes us feel more, more compassionate. But I'm, mm -hmm. I'm wondering also to what extent it makes women more open to predators sexually, for example. I think that's a real potential risk. I think that's a possible risk depending on the environment and the context of the use. With MDMA particularly. Yeah. Well, I think any psychedelics, really. But I think MDMA is, is you know, in that category. Because of the open feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Toad venom. What an interesting thing. People are eating toad venom. 5-MeO-DMT. Mm. But before we go into the toad venom, because there's something related to it that we need to talk about. Mm-hmm. You have been talking about receptors, and you know what a receptor is, and you know what a receptor does, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean all the rest of us know what a receptor is and what it does. Mm -hmm. And you've made the point that methamphetamine and fentanyl touch a particular receptor, and that receptor is known for creating valve problems. So therefore, other things that touch that receptor, we have to look at for the possibility of also creating valve problems. That's right. Tell, tell us about this receptor. What the heck is in a receptor? What does it do? And where does it? And where is it? And what does it look like? Yeah, receptors are everywhere in your body um, for for a variety, but some of the main ways that we have sort of chemical messaging throughout the body to change and regulate and have shifts in, you know, your mental state, your physiologic state. We have adrenergic receptors that are often the, the things that are affected by stimulant type drugs. Um, dopamine receptors also affected by stimulant type drugs. Um, then you have opioids like fentanyl or oxycodone. That's the mu opioid receptor. So there's all these different receptors that each drug is binding into different pockets to cause these sort of effects on transcription, on second messengers, neuropeptides. So it's a lot of complexity once you get beyond the receptor level into second messenger systems. 
And that's where a lot of the science is right now is like looking at what's going on inside the cell as techniques have, have improved to try to figure that out. But yeah, it's important anytime you think of a drug, you know, my first, as my first instinct as a pharmacologist and a pharmacist is what's the mechanism of action? What, what, where is that molecule attaching in the body to cause whatever physiologic effect we know that, that might cause? And so that's essentially what a receptor is in the body. Where, where do they live? They're expressed everywhere. Where do they live? They're expressed everywhere. Yeah, they're expressed everywhere on the heart, in the brain, in the blood vessels, um, in your gut, in your oh, digestive tract. They're, they're all over the place. They're everywhere in your body. Yep. Yep. Okay. So I'm thinking now, we got these receptors. They're everywhere in the body. And I take a particular substance, X. The substance is now distributed. It suddenly gets distributed all over the body. Mm -hmm. And it's seeking out different receptors. And this particular X happens to find its way to the receptor that, that takes it in, right? Not all receptors will take in X. Only That's certain right. ones. Only certain That's ones, right. right? Yep. Okay. Yep. So we have a receptor that if you mess with it, it sends a bad message to a heart valve, right? Yep. Does yep. This, it's does... vital for the development of the heart, right? And growth of the heart valves. And so it's vital to human development to have this receptor, but not triggered in the context of an external drug repeatedly seems to be. The so issue. that's the key. You want that receptor to do that building of that heart valve, but you don't right. want to do something to that receptor that sends a message that instead of putting four wheels on that car, you put 12 mm -hmm. on. That's and now right. You, now your car can't drive because it's too many wheels. Yep. That's right. That's a good way to put it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want us all to understand what this is about as much as possible because that's, mm -hmm. a, that's our job as public scientists, Kellen, to, mm -hmm. to, make, to make our language accessible to everybody, right? Because we- Yeah, we, that, that's uh, exactly- Because these, yeah, these little things like 5-MEO and so on, this is basically shorthand that we all use amongst ourselves. Mm -hmm. But it's our job to also let the public know what the longhand is when you, when you pull this stuff apart, what it means and what it does. Yeah, yeah, that I, I I keep trying to come up with new ways to to describe it. But another way that I describe this potential risk of heart valves is that people understand about their muscles is if you lift weights every day, over time you build muscle mass. If you lift weights for a couple of weeks and stop, you don't see that continued growth of muscle mass, for example. So that's sort of one way for, to help people think about what might be going on with this TV receptor. It's really all about total exposure over time, consistent exposure with no breaks. That's what we know from the other molecules that have this similar TV receptor binding affinity. Well, the heart is a mystery to me in that we want to avoid the heart getting what's called too muscular because mm -hmm. then it's not pliant enough to sure. do the pushing of the blood. Mm -hmm. And I have a hard time understanding how certain things 
can make the heart too muscular. And at the same time, the heart is more active than any other part of the body, and it's constantly exercising, and you would think it would build giant muscles just by its exercising. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. No, no, the body is incredibly resilient in terms of homeostasis. <laughs> it's only if you introduce new things it's never seen all the time that, that we start to get into potential problems. But sometimes. you understand my point. If you moved mm -hmm. almost any muscle in the body, even a fraction of how much the heart moves, you would build up a big muscle, mm -hmm. right? A really yeah. big muscle. But here's yeah. this heart that's beating 72 times a minute. Mm -hmm. That's a lot but of But it also excellent. doesn't have resistance too. So a lot of like you can get tone a little bit, right? Muscle tone if you're not doing resistance. Like, But most of our... Muscle building is also, there's an additive resistance in addition to the pumping part. Yes, I do understand that. And that's why there is a condition called athlete's heart where they mm -hmm. exercise at, at, at great, you know, great vi uh, um, amount of heartbeats and they build up muscles that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, the frog venom. Why, why, mm -hmm. To begin with, everything has a name. Psilocybin has a name, ketamine has a name. But the frog venom gets 5-MeO-DMT. Everybody on the street even calls it 5-MeO. Tell us mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, so, I mean, again, like when we think of all these molecules, you know, why, yeah, why they didn't pick a specific sort of chemical name versus that? Or, and so dimethyltryptamine, which is the DMT found in the ayahuasca brew. Then we have 4-hydroxy-DMT, which is the psilocybin active uh, metabolite. And then we have, in the case of um, this, now we have a 5-methoxy functional group. So a 5-methoxy is just a different functional group on the edge of the DMT molecule. So it, anytime you make a little bit of a functional change or add this hydroxyl group onto DMT or add this 5-methoxy functional group onto a molecule, it can really change how it binds in the receptor pocket. So the, the receptor is this three-dimensional structure, and as the molecule comes in, David Nichols has done a lot of work on this, you, it attaches within this pocket, and that creates a certain confirmation that leads to the signaling that happens intracellularly from there on in. So really, each molecule has a slightly different effect in a slightly different way, even though they're working on the 2A receptor, they all trigger that 2A receptor just a slight, slightly differently. Would you like the public to know about taking psychedelics when you're also already taking an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, a little mm -hmm. something that's telling one of those little sites you're teaching us about not to work? Yeah. So yeah, the SSRIs and, and medications that have any kind of serotonin reuptake inhibition or certain molecules like MDMA and other phenethylamines that can cause increases of serotonin spilling out of the, the presynaptic neuron, the com those combinations to me are most dangerous with ayahuasca. And that's because in addition to ayahuasca having DMT, it also has these beta-carboline 
harmala compounds that are monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So the reversible inhibitors of monoamine oxidase A. And so when you get that, that means you're, you're having more serotonin buildup and then you're also not breaking it down. And that's where we start to see the risk of serotonin toxicity increase. It's the reason why MAYs were, were commonly used for depression back when they were first invented. And now you, you hardly see them used because they're just not, they don't have as good of a safety and tolerability profile as, as some of our others, but they're still out there. People still take MAYs for depression. And what you clearly see on that labeling is you're not supposed to take an SSRI or any other drugs within two weeks of that. And so that's one of my biggest concerns is the mixing of things like SSRIs, SNRIs, MDMA, or other phenethylamines like 2CB and adding that with ayahuasca brews because that's where you could start to really increase serotonin to toxic levels. We don't see that with things like MDMA, which they're competing for the same site, um, psilocybin, LSD. We don't see any adverse effects from a serotonin toxicity standpoint. If anything, you just might not notice the subjective effects is intensely. So the, the clinical studies we have, sometimes if you take an SSRI with psilocybin or with LSD or with MDMA, you actually see a decrease in the intensity of psychedelic effects. But there doesn't seem to be any increased safety risk. So the main one is the ayahuasca brew, harmala alkaloids with monoamine oxidase inhibitors that are can be dangerous with other serotonin, pro-serotonin drugs. Mm -hmm. To administer psilocybin and MDMA. Do you have any comments on that mixture? Any warnings? Anything they should know about? Or what, what are you, what's your saying on that? No, I mean, there, there now has been an LSD and MDMA combination study it doesn't seem to have any increased risk. If anything, I think it can somehow, you know, some people with a classic psychedelic like LSD or psilocybin can have so many thoughts coming in, can feel a little overwhelming. And so feeling maybe a little bit more of the safety or openness with MDMA could potentially be a benefit, I think, with that combination. Uh -huh. And from the standpoint of any adverse drug interaction, there doesn't really seem to be any, any clear risk of adverse drug interactions with that combination. Yes. The positive that I've heard about is that that irritability that you described earlier that comes with the, uh, particularly with LSD and with psilocybin in the early stage, like the first 10 or 15 minutes, mm -hmm. is smoothed out if you time it right with the MDMA so you don't have that disruption. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me um, from a pharmacologic standpoint as well. Well, Kaylin, thank you so much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It's been very educational. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Let's follow up again in about six months or a year and see what new stuff you can bring us. All right. Sounds good. Excellent. And thank you all, listeners for being with us today on this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, has all of our archives, and I'm pleased to say they're open source, which means 
They're free. You can listen to any of our programs going back many years in the comfort of your home or your car, wherever you are, without paying any fees for it. And we have some of the finest minds on the planet on the program. Also, just a little reminder, if I may, that my latest book, Freeing Sexuality, hit the stands a few weeks ago. I think it's worth a look. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.